0: Fantastic character and it's a fantastic book in the Bible Uh, maybe that's just because I'm a doer Presbyterian but there's something about Job that I go back to again and again and uh, find uh, tremendous teaching and comfort and challenge in the book. I would like very much if I have the opportunity to uh, choose with whom I shake hands when I get to heaven, Job would be the first guy that I go to because of the willingness even though maybe Uh, he didn't realise at the time, the willingness he had to have his heart and life exposed in this way and uh, to leave us the uh, tremendous teaching from the struggle and the wrestles that he had with God and with his faith. I'm not going to go into the story uh, other than to say it's a a book uh, that God has given us in his word about suffering. There's no doubt about that and uh, Job himself was one who had everything and who lost everything except possibly his wife and his life he didn't have much left uh, and he had been a rich man and he'd been a contented man and he had a big family and he had lots of possessions and he lost everything and the book is really about his struggle to cope with that and to deal with that and to challenge it uh, with his faith and with his understanding of God and um he also, we have the wonderful input of uh, his friends, uh, in very commas, uh, with all their trite answers and their easy answers about suffering. Theologically sound, I'm sure, and, and correct, but not accurate in Job's case. And uh, we find a wonderful twist in the story at the end, which we'll just look at very briefly. what what's great about Job is his willingness to dig deep and to not just either become uh, uh, incurably bitter in his sufferings or not just to ignore them altogether but his willingness to see this is God God's a good God and I'm going through all this hell on earth misery, rottenness and the two just don't seem to go together and he's willing to dive and delve deep into his understanding of God and speak with God and try to come to some conclusions through it so we see that throughout the book in many ways job uh, is someone whose faith is in crisis and we'll look at that first job's faith being in crisis and uh, what I'd like to do is to remind you at job 9 not absolutely and completely and and, uh, uh, totally accurately but roughly uh, we're in the middle of the story so it's been quite difficult to just uh, come into the story and read it tonight cold uh, because you're coming into the middle of the story it's a little bit like uh, uh, barging into the operating theatre when someone's getting open heart surgery. It's ugly. You know, you're right there, the guy's open wide, and there's going to in blood everywhere, and it's a real mess. And so, it's not the end of the story. Uh, the guy hasn't been cured, and he isn't running again, and jogging, and eating pork pies. It's not the beginning of the story, because it's not before he's entered you You're right there in the middle of the story. And the same is true here with Job. Spiritually speaking, it's in the middle of open heart surgery. We have uh, an access or an insight straight into what is happening between himself and God. And it isn't the final conclusion of the story. So please remember that as we look at it this evening. It's in the process of deep struggle. And there are three statements that are quite frightening statements that Job makes in this chapter that we've read together. And they are statements that I want to just unpack a little bit and then... uh, see how we can come through them and learn from them ourselves but these statements must add in Job's favour are based uh, are born from his own wrestling with the infinitude of God and with the character of God and the majesty of God and the bigness of God I often feel that our God is pocket sized he's really small we have him on a leash we drag him around with us and he's manageable and malleable and small and uh, one that we simply don't struggle with and he's easy and he's neat and he's nice and he's precise and he's lovable and yet when he's manageable like that he ceases to be God and we need to wrestle with him in the struggles that we face in life and faith in crisis is often born of uh, those who are willing to do that wrestling in their hearts with the greatness of god in verse 2 of chapter 9 that we read uh, the first frightening statement that he comes out with in, in, in many ways is i can't be righteous indeed he says i know this to be true but how can a mortal be righteous before god job senses in his problems this massive gulf between himself and god and it's It's something that he struggles with God's relentless holiness and his own guilt. Even if he's innocent, he says, "I'll be pronounced guilty because uh, I can't be righteous before God." Verses one to thirteen is this magnificent, almost soliloquy between Job uh, between Job and anyone, if it's a soliloquy, but it's uh, between God and himself, uh, between Job and himself rather, where he. gives us this wonderful picture of the creator God uh, with its, its lovely poetry in a sense and the, the marvel of the words and uh, yet yeah, this recognition of who God is that he knows profoundly vast, powerful, irresistible sovereign, miracle working God an ever present God God who is unseen, unaccountable and angry God who does not restrain his anger, he finishes with in verse 13. I can't be righteous. Big God. And you know he's right. He's right with that picture of God at some levels. We have been brought up in a daft and shallow society. A society that has shrunk God to someone who is laughable and pitiable. God in a leash. A society which titters nervously at the concept of a divine judge. A, God that, uh, a society that has erased, erased eternity out of the equation, despises accountability, trivialises guilt. Beware that we don't do the same in our Christian understanding, that we make God a small God and we apologise for him all the time, we apologise for the Bible and for the revealed truth and for the challenges and for the difficulties and for the counterculture that it professes so that we're always trying to squeeze God into our mould rather than allowing God and His Word to uh, characterise our lives and our hearts and our understanding. I can't be righteous, he says. But then he goes on to say in verse 22, I'm not really going through this very uh, uh, in a detailed way, God doesn't care it's all the same he says in verse 22 that's why I say it destroys both the blameless and the wicked it's a recurring complaint throughout this book of Job uh, almost verging on the fatalistic God doesn't seem to care and throughout the book he argues really powerfully I've sat down and read Job and it's oh, a pretty good argument he's got there it's pretty strong what he's saying But we know from the conclusion of the story that he argues from a wrong perspective and he doesn't see things clearly. However, we need to learn not to be quick to condemn those who make these same complaints because often they come from broken hearts and desperately real situations. He doesn't care. He shows that in verse 14 when he says, I can't argue with him, then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. He just seems to say that, you know, whichever way I look, whichever way I turn, whatever I say, I can't argue with God because he's sovereign and he's Lord and he's majestic and I have nothing to say. And he goes on to say, even if I could argue with him, he doesn't listen anyway. Verse 16, even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He's death. He's not listening. How often have we made that cry? How often have we said that? Shaking our fists. You're not listening, God. You don't care. You haven't an interest in my heart and in my life. Worse than that. We might even go beyond that and say what Job says in verses 17 to 19 where he says that God even enjoys my suffering. It's as if he seems to just See that God enjoys what he's going through. He would crush me with a storm. He would multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath. Gratuitous suffering. Isn't that what so many people uh, argue about uh, with respect to God? He enjoys the suffering of this world. watched a program the other day about atheists. And it was the ongoing, recurrent uh, argument. Oh, I God, such a great God, why did he make us so that we could do wrong? Why did he allow all the suffering in the world? It can often be a trite, trivial and careless uh, accusation from those who have kind of culled it from the television or the newspapers or whatever, but it can also be something that is genuine. The divine muscle flexor. But where does this thinking lead job and where does it lead our friends? And where will it lead us if we think of God in these terms? Well, it leads us to the place where there is no hope. And we've got Job roughly, probably in Job 9, we've probably got the bottom of the barrel here in terms of Job suffering or the, the, the bottom of the bit on the graph that goes down. Well, he starts going up right there at the bottom. And uh, he's in a hopeless, despairing place in his uh, life as a believer there's despair there for him verse 25 my days are swifter than a runner they fly away without a glimpse of joy we're talking about joy this evening from uh, what was being said at the weekend away in Philippians well for Job there was no Philippian experience there was no joy for him rather there was despair it's very often the kind of uh, language that we get in Ecclesiastes where the writer of Ecclesiastes puts on two different hats, sometimes he's a believer and then sometimes he pretends to be one who isn't a believer, life under the sun, without God, despair. How many people are in that place of despair, no concern for uh, their own lives? No hope, despair. We have hope. We need to take that hope to people we have the gospel but that hopelessness and that despair can also lead in people's thinking to fantasy verse 27 he says if I say I will forget my complaint I will change my expression and smile and that's what he was considering things are really bad we've come to this desperate position I'll just forget what I'm going through and I'll just smile anyway and I'll fantasise and I'll pretend it isn't happening he considers this path of escapism the theology of the ostrich where we just stick our head in the sand and forget our problems and just, well hey, let's have the crack anyway let's go out and get rattled on a Friday night and enjoy life and forget all the difficulties and all the trials and all the problems if we forget it, it isn't there we stick our head in the sand, then that's great. We ignore the crisis. We deny the facts and reality. And we just give this fantastic smile and it all goes away. But it's a smile that's hollow and hopeless and despairing. And that hopelessness, which considers fantasy, ends up in dread. In verse 28, even though I change my expression and smile I still dread all my sufferings you know the ostrich that sticks its head in the sand must come to the realisation that it's still in the dark down there and that is what he recognises a dread and a despair and a sense of irresistible guilt and I wonder either tonight or among the people we interact with on a day to day basis How many of life's smilers are full of dread? Are full of this misery and dread of life? How many smilers dread the night time? Dread being alone? Dread illness? Dread death? Dread God? Dread reality? Hopeless. Here, Job is in a valley and his vision is distorted. He can't see things clearly. But can I remind you that it's not for Job the end of the story. And we mustn't just close the book there. We must follow through what Job is experiencing and what conclusions he comes to. And that brings us on to the second part, uh, which is his faith on the moon. We've seen his faith in crisis, but we also see... Uh, the beginnings of this faith being on the move here and as we go throughout the book his faith uh, on the move upwards verse 33 brings us to these magnificent words if only if only there were someone to arbitrate between us to lay his hand on us both if only he's holding on But deep down in there, in that bog where he is, there's a subliminal reality that there's an answer. That there is someone who will arbitrate, and there is someone that God will provide who gives the answer. He himself can't see it at that time. What does he say at the end of the chapter? But as it now stands with me, I cannot. I cannot speak with him. I cannot be in relationship with God. I just want to pause there for a moment and remind ourselves of the importance of being self-aware and also of having great sympathy for those who are in the depths of darkness spiritually. Here's someone who at the moment can't see God and can't see his arbitrator and can't see a redeemer and doesn't know a way out. But he says, at the moment I can't see it. But if only... And there's a kind of throw forward to what might be and what might happen. It's still a cry of faith, even though he's in the dark, and even though he can't immediately see. Now, we mustn't always be wagging our finger at people and say, well, you must come out of this, and you must seek Jesus, and you must look. Without understanding the inability at that particular time to see clearly the clouds of depression, the clouds of uh, experience and darkness weighing down them. But we must also seek that for ourselves, that self-awareness of knowing where we are and knowing where we're going. Faith on the move, if only, he says. And it's faith on the move because he moves from a place of despair here to a place where he is able to begin once more a trust God and I'm just going to jump to one or two little bits later on, just to bring that to focus. In Job 19 and verses 25, we have these magnificent words of Job. It's only a little while later, he says, "I know that my redeemer lives, and that in the earth he will stand; uh, that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God." I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Here is him beginning to see the if only beginning to happen. His arbitrator, his redeemer, the one who stands between himself and God. And he recognises that God has provided that. He can't see it clearly. But he knows that God is his saviour and he begins here to hold on to that fact his future is beginning to look brighter and it's wonderful, that step where he can trust God in the midst of what he's going through, his suffering. But more than that, as Job develops, the book, I mean, develops, we find him not only being able to give this assent of trust once more in God, but he also meets with God. The end of the book of Job is quite magnificent in the way it deals with uh, God's answer to Job and how God bends down speaks to him and if you have time tonight please go home and read it it's just quite wonderful how uh, we recognise the glorious uh, counselling power of the living God as he speaks to uh, Job he doesn't answer him directly uh, but he knows Job knows that he has met with God it's a phenomenal meeting as God speaks to him and teaches him And Job is able to see in chapter 42, verse 3, uh, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and uh, repent in dust and ashes. So moving from this trust, he is also given the privilege of meeting with God. This is what he needed most in his suffering and his trial and his difficulty to meet with God, to meet with the living God and God bends down and speaks to him and God says, Look, I know Job and I care Job and I engulf you in my love and I give you the gentlest of rebukes from a gracious, loving Father. I hear what you're saying and you're forgiven and you're cleansed and you're washed it's personal and it's real and it leads him to this clearer understanding, he'd heard of God now he's seen God and he repents having seen he had a great view of God's majesty but he didn't recognise God's wonderful tender, compassionate touch and the much that I believe is unsaid in the meeting between God and Job, so he trusts God and he meets with God in this remarkable way And then, gloriously, he is asked to reflect God. He's asked to reflect God. In Job 42, 8b, we're told that God says, My servant Job, God's speaking to the other three guys at this point, My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly this is brilliant what's happening Uh, God is giving Job he's recommissioning him with a Job he's saying look you've experienced my grace my forgiveness you've seen things differently now he says Job I want you to go to your three stupid friends and I want you to pray on their behalf I want you to show them the forgiveness you've received and to declare to them that they too need an arbiter between themselves in all their arrogant, sort of clean cut nice, ordered, balanced answers that they need an arbiter between themselves and God and Job, I'm giving you that place, that picture I'm, I'm just using you in this instance as the arbiter, a Christ-like figure at this place Job, you've tasted my forgiveness you know that I have an arbiter show that to them live it live that grace share it pray for them pray for your stupid friends because they were stupid they had all the answers for Job all of them they knew exactly where he'd gone wrong they knew exactly what he was doing and they had the A, B, C to Z compendium of theological answers for him but God was angry with them for their stupidness for their stupidity and they needed forgiveness he was asked to reflect God so for us, very briefly in conclusion what do we learn from this faith on the move where well, we surely, with our New Testament eyes, look back on Job very differently and can say well we know our own great divine somebody if only there was someone to arbitrate between us Our great somebody is Jesus, isn't he? He is the one who arbitrates between us and God. He is our substitute. He is our saviour. And it's in him that we live and move and have our being and must progress as Christians so that we also will have this ongoing and progressive uh, development in our faith that Job had. Trusting, meeting and then reflecting. Reflecting. And we are asked to do the same. We are asked to trust God through Jesus Christ in good times, in bad times and lean on Him recognising who He is. That trust will often involve deep wrestling of our souls. It's not easy. It's not one sentence. It's not trite. You will struggle in your experiences as I struggle in mine to to Uh, dovetail what we're experiencing with this good God who is letting us suffer in our lives but we trust in him and then we also meet with him there's nothing that you or I need more this evening than this personal contact with God meeting with him not just knowing about him not knowing the facts about him but meeting with him at the point of our need where we have cried out, where we've openly despaired before him, where we've felt atheistic and blasphemous and we've cried it all out to God and God condescends in his great love and in his great glory to meet us at the point of our need, touching us so that we are able to profess the same things that Job professes at the end of the book. Prayer, it's been said, is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness He longs for us. He doesn't want us to give us all the ABCs. He doesn't want us to give him a correct, neat, orderly, all-together faith. Lord, look what I've got. I give it to you. Perfect. He wants us to come with our struggles and with our doubts and with our depression and with our atheism and all that we have. And he wants us to lay it before him because he loves us and because he wants us to grow when we do that, we are privileged to ask to be asked by him to live that life of grace. when we 've sensed his forgiveness and his washing and the freedom that that brings and the joy and the renewal, then we are asked to share that, reflect it, pray for others, show grace to them, live grace. Now that is what constitutes a great body of Christians is a body of people who not only know grace but who live it who live it together and who live it in the world and why is it we find it so hard to live grace and living grace isn't really just sort of skipping around and smiling and all kind of, oh I'm a Christian, Christ died for me as if it's easy and kind of nice grace is forgiving the one who is unforgivable and grace is putting into practice what we are before God in our relationships with others who we feel don't deserve forgiveness who don't deserve a second opportunity who we really quite deep down enjoy not liking and gossiping about and not being reconciled to justifying, vindicating our own position but if we haven't experienced grace we will never share it and a great question for us maybe particularly for us if we've been brought up as I have in the church knowing the church for whom grace is just a common word do we really understand like Job the place where we say I look I despise myself I repent in dust and ashes for what I am before your sovereign love please please forgive me and having experienced that it, does it not change us and change the way we look at other people so that we don't imbibe the world's principles but imbibe Christ and live grace therefore I conclude with the two points if you are in despair this evening can I encourage you to remember that Job 9 is not the end of the book it's not the end of the story I'm so grateful for this book being included in the canon of scripture because it takes us right through a whole journey to this magnificent conclusion if you're in despair and if you can't see Jesus and if you can't understand the concept of uh, an arbiter this evening hold on and keep trusting until he shows but also are we on the move in our lives as this faith picture of Job reveals itself as someone on the move are we growing do we not simply trust in him but are we meeting with him through our struggles, through our own hearts as his light shines in you know, as his light shines in the darker our heart appears the closer we allow him the more that needs to be changed that's why very often we want to keep him at a distance, isn't it keep him for a Sunday morning that'll do because any deeper, any closer His glory and His light shines into the darkness of our own heart and demands that we change. But yet that's where our faith is on the move, where we grow and develop and mature. Why? Because our sin is like a cancer and it destroys us. His grace is healing love and power and it will make us whole. May our faith be on the move as we get real with God and recognise who He is and who we are before Him. And his great love. Amen. We'll bow our heads briefly in prayer. Let's pray.